Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, February 22nd, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, on-click conflicts, say that <laughs> 10 times fast, between jQuery and Google Analytics, our development setup for responsive web design, and why SaaS is stupid. <laughs> totally kidding. Lies, all lies. I know. Please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You are sounding good today. That's good. If this works out, I will I will podcast more often with a pillow behind my mic. <laughs> you should have one behind your head as well. Yeah, I probably should. I, I just I was looking at the way I've got the the mic set up on my desk here and I realized it's back in the corner and there's a bookshelf around it. It's like it's like just like a big echo chamber. Yeah. So it sounds good to me. Hopefully yeah. the dear listener will agree. Yeah, I'm curious to see how it comes out on the recording. Hmm. Cool. What's going on there? Anything good? Um, no, it's been a very long day. Yeah. Only 2.30, but I started at 5 this morning. Ah, uh, that's, yeah, as you know, that's right around when I went to bed. More, yeah. like, more like 7, actually. Crazy schedule lately, just falling asleep. I've been falling asleep early, like 10 p.m., which is radically early for me. Yeah, I've been doing that, too. Yeah, but then I, you know, wake up four hours later and it's two. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't get back to sleep because no, you're awake. awake. Yeah, I've, I've, I've fallen into like I used to. I used to stay up all night and sleep during the day. It was a horrible schedule. And lately, I've been falling asleep around ten o'clock at night and then getting up around four in the morning, mm. which is is much better than two. That extra two hours makes all the difference. Yeah, big time. If I could, yeah. if I could go from ten to five, that would be like, that'd be pretty good. Yeah. The problem with getting up at five is that's danger zone for Cooperville because mm. he, there's no way he'd wake up at like anywhere between two or four. But if I'm rambling around at five. Yeah, that's, that's funny. I remember the same thing when Kira was younger. Like if there was a window there where she'd had enough sleep that she wasn't going to wake up on her own, but she had enough sleep that if something woke her up, she, you know, she was, she was up. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was a rule. It's like, you know, if you get up within like two hours of, you know, if you get up like at six o'clock in the morning, you're not allowed to flush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let it stew. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Totally. And, and I'm only laughing because it's exactly the same here. <laughs> yeah. Especially now that our, our downstairs bathroom's all burned out and it's still not oh, yeah. fixed. Yeah, so like the the only bathroom we have is the upstairs one, which is approximately four feet from his bed. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kira's Kira's bedroom's right next to the, the guest bathroom. Mm. So Yeah. <laughs> Did you do this thing when, when he was real little and this is gonna make me sound like a horrible parent to all of our listeners, but we do this thing, Kira would she would always wake up early in the morning. She would never sleep in. Mm. And so on the rare occasions when she would, and I would wake up before her, yeah, I would lay there in bed and I'm going like, is she just sleeping in or is she dead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like, totally. If she's dead, I'm not going to be able to fix it now, so I should just go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 
I have had similar <laughs> thoughts, but I could never <clears throat> like the the difference with me is that there's no way I, I would ever wake up before he did. So it was I think it only happened once when I was like I woke up and it was like eight at yeah. which point he probably should have been awake and he wasn't making any noise. And yeah, I got the panic. I was like, yeah. how come he's not awake? But then I'd be too panicked to go back to sleep. But I, I appreciate your commitment. Yeah, because it's like, well, if I go in there and check on her, I'm just going to wake her up. Yeah. There's, I or mean, I could just go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, what's, it's, it's nothing you can do at that point. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a lost cause at this point anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing about it. One thing that is a big difference with now that I'm a parent that I noticed is that every, constantly, I'm constantly envisioning the nightmare scenario. So like last night we had, uh, we had sushi for dinner mm -hmm. and he's sitting at the counter with chopsticks and he obviously he can't use them. He's three, but he was playing with them like drumsticks and they were, they were, they were, you know, those takeout ones that are really, uh, splintery. Yeah. And he, he had him in his hands, like, uh, he was gripping him like drumsticks, but then he started like banging the bases of him on the, on the counter. So his hands were going to slide down the like shaft oh, of the chopsticks. Splinters in the hands. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, so it was like, so I'm like, you know, you're going to get splinters. And then he like sort of slipped in his seat and like immediately the I flashed to him flying off the seat, which is a, a bar stool. It's like a counter height bar stool and like the chopstick perfectly landing on the ground so that it like went through his eye or something. Yeah, like impaling himself on the chopstick. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. as a, it's, I don't know if it's just me, but every time any situation is going on, I'm envisioning like, well, what if that window just blew out right now? He'd just go flying two stories <laughs> down, you know, constantly yeah. thinking stuff like that. It's, <laughs> it's like a horror movie running in my head. Yeah, I did that for a while, and then I started taking Paxil when it got a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's better now because I've been having the horror movie since, you know, for three years and like yeah. practically nothing ever happens. And when something does happen, it's like they're surprisingly resilient, those little kids. Oh, they're, but when they're, when they're tiny, they're so helpless. Like you can't help but think of every, every possible bad scenario. Right. They can't look out for themselves. No, when he started walking, I suppose that's when it got bad. But <laughs> anyway, so we're, <laughs> we're both up for parent of the year now. Yeah. So, yeah, apps, apps. Web, web, all that stuff. We have a, well, first we have to think, do we have any, I don't think we have any housekeeping. I don't think so. Housekeeping is always step one. Let me look real quick at the calendar. Next week seems like a normal crazy week, so we should be able to, shouldn't have any yeah. problem with the normal schedule. So I don't think there's any housekeeping, but we do have a bug report. Yes, we do. It's so exciting. It's been a while. It has been, actually. Hmm. Not that we haven't encountered and made bugs. It's just <laughs> too stupid to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's that fine line. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so jQuery and Google Analytics were fighting with you, huh? Uh, yeah, and it's not specific to Google Analytics, but I have a feeling this is probably where it comes up most often. Um, I was working on a, working on a website... And I was setting up some Google Analytics tracking codes for you know, specific URLs um, to to track some some individual campaigns and, and that sort of thing. So you can go and set them up in Google Analytics, and they give you 
the default code they give you back is you know, it's usually like an on-click event to add to a link. And oh really? Yeah. Oh, now that may I didn't understand because I've never used Google Analytics to track campaigns like that. I just you know paste it into the, the bottom of my site before the closing body tag. The site as a whole. Right. Yeah. No, you can you can set up specific specific events and specific links within the page that you want to track. Hmm. And so the code that it generates for that that gives you to to put in your web page for that has. On click um, underscore underscore GA such and such blah blah, and so the thing there is if you have if that link is also bound to a a click event in jQuery, hmm. then that jQuery click event is going to fire and whatever is in the on click attribute is not going not going to go off. It's, it's not going to do both. Uh. which is which is interesting because you can have multiple jQuery on click bindings. For the same link. Yeah, it, I'm surprised that the hardwired one doesn't override. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't happen at all. Huh. Whatever jQuery is doing to to bind to click there kind of jumps in, jumps in first and stops it. So what you have to do then, it's, you know, it's a simple fix. You can either either move your analytics or whatever else you may have in on click, move that into your into your jQuery binding or if you want to go the other way with it, then can I keep your jQuery cleaner, but still have you know, still have that um, that on-click stuff in your in your HTML? Um, you can just use um, whenever the click event fires in jQuery, you can just gla- grab whatever's in the on-click attribute for your link, and then just eval it. Ooh, interesting. Huh. Well, that's that is. There's about five reasons why I would never have been in a situation to discover this bug. <laughs> and I wonder if any of them are alternate solutions. Because, like, so for example, um, you know, I've never set up campaign tracking or like, uh, what's the other thing? It's like conversion tracking where you're trying yeah. to create like a sales funnel and, you know, like, oh, people, you know, I've got three links on this page to a registration. They all go to the same page. But which one is the one that gets clicked the most? Right. It's an interesting piece of data. I've never set it up, but um, I probably should. Uh, but the generally when I bind, well, maybe and maybe you did it like this too, but generally when I bind to um, A tags, which is what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. I am working on like something that's a little more appy than sighty, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I never bind directly to the elements. I bind everything to the body. And when the events bubble up, I handle them there. Yeah, these, these were actually um, uh, form submission buttons. And there's a lot of client-side validation on the form submission. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Uh, interesting. Well... Two possible solutions. I guess it depends on where you want to put your, where you want your mass. Yeah. Yeah. Either both ways feel kind of messy to me, but hmm. you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an interesting piece of data. I could, you know, it's very highly actionable. Can you yeah. tell I've been working in a, a couple of large corporate projects lately? <laughs> yes. Just said actionable. So, <laughs> so that was a good one. Hopefully that will help someone. Yeah, I feel like that probably comes up fairly common. Seems like something that would be fairly common. Yeah. 
All right, cool. So um, other things we have to talk about today are development setups for our, our web design efforts, which generally are always responsive these days. Yes, and, and you and I seem to do things differently. Yeah, and I guess I knew that. I, we, you know, we, we this sort of came up on Twitter uh, in the context of me bashing SAS, which let me tell you, if you want a lot of um, activity on Twitter... Say something bad about SAS. Say something bad about SAS. That was like the most hectic thread I've ever had on Twitter. <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, so basically what happened was I said I was dealing with um, so a SAS file that someone else wrote and I was having a hard time debugging it because the, um, you know, I'm debugging it in Chrome. I basically do all of my development in, in Chrome desktop. And I've got the you know developer tools open, and I see the thing I need to change in the CSS, like the margin's wrong or whatever. It was like a background image size or something like that, and I can see right in the CSS where it is and where I want to, you know I fix it in Chrome, make sure that's the way it's supposed to look. Okay, great. Now I'm going to put that in the CSS, but I can't put it in the CSS. I have to put it in the SAS file and then recompile the SAS file and then it recreates the CSS. But there's no you know I don't know if it was the way the SAS file was written because I didn't write it or or what, but it's really freaking hard to find the spot in a really, you know, a thousand line SAS file that corresponds to the line number that ends up in the CSS. <laughs> yeah. So before SAS fans start screaming at their headphones, um, I tweet, you know, I basically tweeted like SAS, you know, I, I, I don't think that the, I said something like the benefits of SAS don't outweigh the the downside which is that it makes debugging harder and anything that makes debugging harder is not going to my toolkit yeah and, and i was ready to pitchfork you <laughs> yeah a hundred people jumped on my case like it was like the sass mafia came after me and you know like people were like oh you you know bad code is bad code don't blame the tools and you know and there was also the uh, you know there's like a hundred config options you can set up for sass that allow you to that that like add kind of like commented line numbers to the resulting CSS file. And people were like, you can use uh, this. This one really surprised me. But in uh, apparently in the Google Dev Tools, you can use source set to actually like, I haven't used source set. So, and I thought it was only for CoffeeScript, but basically it allows, um, my understanding is it allows you to actually edit the SAS in mm -hmm. Chrome. And if I that's the case, then that's, then that totally invalidates my get off my lawn statement. <laughs> yeah. So we ended up getting into this conversation about, um, you know, it, you were like, oh, well, that probably doesn't bother me because I don't use the develop Chrome developer tools, which was horrifying on its own. Oh, but I, I use them for things like JavaScript errors and setting breakpoints to set through scripts and things like that, but mm -hmm. I don't do any CSS debugging in it now. I see. Okay. All right, so yeah, so that's how we got into this conversation about well, like what what's your development setup? Um, sure, I have it, it's a couple of different couple of different ways depending on on whether type of project I'm doing. Um, for instance, uh, like Rails projects get handled a little bit differently because Rails has a lot of uh, built-in compilers for for SAS and CoffeeScript and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but just in general, if I'm working on an app, um, I'll have Sublime text for my editor mm -hmm. and then I will have uh, code kit running in the background that compiles all of my SAS or, or less whichever I happen to be using 
um, compiles all of those files uh, in real time. And then CodeKit also does, it has a, a feature from Live Reload. There's a Live Reload plugin you can get for Chrome that's completely separate. And if you don't want to use CodeKit, you can just get the Live Reload plugin. Um, and what it does is every time, every time the CSS or the HTML or anything on the page changes, it will, you know, it will reload, refresh the page in your browser. And sometimes it's a full reload. Sometimes if it's a CSS change, it'll just inject the the changed CSS, and and not reload the page. But uh, yeah, so that's basically what I do. Um, if I have CSS bugs that I'm working out, then I will just I'll look at things in the browser, and then I'll just um, switch back to Sublime and do my editing on the SAS files directly there. And once I save them and go back to the browser, you know, my changes take effect. It's it's really really seamless process. Right. And that makes perfect sense. And in fact, that's, that's what I was doing. I wasn't using CodeKit for some reason. I don't know. I, I think it's probably because I do a lot of development on an 11 inch screen. I don't like to have mm-hmm. it running. Yeah. Um, so I prefer, I pretty much always have my terminal window open at the lower half of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. There's the command line SAS compiler too. Yeah. So that's what I usually, that's what I've been doing. I don't, I can't say I usually use SAS because I usually don't, but because it's stupid. But I'm trying to get like, this is like link bait. I'm trying to get like more dear listeners. So, but yeah, I usually do it at the command line and just do the like SAS watch and then the source folder and the target folder. And it's, it's pretty sweet. I have to, it is definitely really cool. Uh, It's really easy to do. It was really easy to get installed. You know, there's like no, no complaints about that. But even in the workflow you just described, there's your, you're going from, the SAS file to the browser. Now, mm-hmm. what if you're in the SAS files closed, code kits closed, you're in the browser and you notice that you've got some kind of like, you know, at some breakpoint, you've got some, you know, button text that's too small or it's, it's aligned improperly. Then what do you do? Wait a minute. You're saying these, these, these programs, sublime and, and code kit, you're saying they can be closed. <laughs> Therein lies the difference, I suppose. No, but you know what I mean? When you see, yeah. the, when you see the butt, like it's, I understand that when you're working on a form or a section or some element yeah. of a page, I understand that you know where you are in your code and that's fine. But when you are like, say you're troubleshooting someone else's code, which was the situation mm-hmm. I was in. Yeah. You have no idea how the file's laid out and it's a long file. And you know, I'm like, okay. Um, I, I, it's easy to find where the bug is in the CSS because you can just right click on the element, open up the development tools. It zooms right into the element. You can edit the CSS right there. Mm -hmm. If it was locally on my machine, I could hit save and it would save it right there. Um, but it, you know, so like, what would you do in a case like that where you're like browsing the site? You're like, okay, you're in testing and you're going through and you're like, Oh, here's a, here's a problem. Um, I would probably do it a, a few different ways. Um, one, there's a good possibility I would just make note of it and come back and do it later because I tend to run through and make a list of all the things that need changed and, and then go back through them and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, you know, just just open open the SAS file and just search for the, the element in the that I'm wanting to change in the CSS. But you don't know what to search for. Like, how do you know what to search for? 
Uh, what do you mean you don't know what to search for? <laughs> well, because the selector that shows up in the CSS isn't necessar- doesn't exist in the SAS file necessarily. Unless I'm totally, unless I totally don't get it. But like, so if you, if you look at, if you look at, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got, uh, a selector that's like, um, body dot home, um, uh, greater than, you know, like descendant selector or child selector, uh, form child selector, or that's a bad one. Uh, you know, child selector, UL, L I A. Well, like what you can't just search for a you can't just search for li you need like it's probably nested inside of home somewhere yeah you got to find the top tag and then kind of kind of work your way down yeah it's a pain in the ass <laughs> <laughs> if you're using a lot of class names and ids then fine yeah it's easy but that's i don't think that's good practice so it's like um again maybe it's like maybe someone out there is like oh well you're an idiot which is true so I can't really argue that, but I'm just pointing out that it's like, it's really hard if you don't know how the SAS file was authored, yeah. you know, team environment, you have no idea what to search for. Yeah, I guess, I guess I don't run into that a lot because I'm usually the one authoring those types of things. Um, you know, I've just, I've, I've never had a huge huge issue with it and then like you said if it does if it does come up and I'm looking for something in the CSS and I just absolutely cannot find it you know then you just go into the SAS config and turn on the the line number comments right and that that was news to me so that is that pretty much deflates my argument as does the source set thing so that's good but I'm still not using it (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because the things that the things that are making you call SAS stupid are the um, it's the same types of issues that made me hesitant about, as I made still, make me kind of hesitant about CoffeeScript. Yeah, it's a, the same. It's the same argument. Yeah. Right, and I know yeah. I mean I know I'm being like an old you know, you know just curmudgeonly about it, but mm-hmm. it, I just I think really what it boils down to is that it doesn't solve a problem that I have, and it creates some problems that I don't have, so. I, yeah, I, I think you're you're probably not working on apps as big as, like like I find the SAS really comes in handy for for large apps. And so yeah, and I I agree. I think that is what it is because the people who were really really tearing into me, who are people I respect, like don't get me wrong, it's like you, Thomas Lov at Infinum, who who without exception has good advice, and a bunch of other like heavy hitters. You know, I think all of them are writing like 10,000, you know, writing apps that have 10,000 lines of CSS, which I think is, I mean, we could get it. You know, I just, there shouldn't be that, that much CSS shouldn't exist in the world. (laughs) So like if I write a if I write something that has more than a thousand lines of CSS, I'm, I, I feel dirty. I'm like, why am I worrying about style so much? I need to worry more about content and functionality because that, and it's just a personal thing with me. I know that's, you know, that's just me. So agreed. If I was writing a, if I was writing like you know a, a huge gigantic um, project that was like super yeah. pixel perfect and needed a million like a million vendor prefixed things and the client was being super picky about it working on every little thing, then yeah, maybe it, that would be that would be really hard to do. Yeah, I guess I would just. Um... 
I've gotten into the habit of doing it, and I'm so used to so used to working with that setup now that I use it for smaller things too, just because it's just become a normal part of my workflow. Yeah, but it's funny because I've I've totally drank the Kool Aid on SAS, but I'm still kind of on the fence about CoffeeScript. Right. Yeah, it's it is the same argument, and I realize that I'm being I'm being an old fart about it. <laughs> And that SAS is so like, you know, what would totally change my mind about both of them is if they were implemented directly by browser vendors. Yeah. Then I'd be like, all right, that's the way we do it now. Yeah. I gotta, should just I gotta be learn this. Done, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it is, I, I can imagine that SAS will be the blueprint for a future CSS. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. CSS, CSS implementation is kind of, I mean, you know, it, it works, but it doesn't feel well well architected i i i understand that but at the same time i think it's kind of genius the way they did it yeah it is it's i i do think it's it's like it's really easy to work with right it's not it's not programming which i think was an important design feature or a design goal which is that i mean you can do everything that sas doesn't let you do anything that css can't do right nothing so right. it's it's all about code organization and, and long-term maintenance, which are things that I'm a fan of. Yeah, and then automating some of the things like vendor prefixes and, and being able to have includes and mix-ins. Even that stuff, it still comes down to code organization. What? Okay, so that's another thing that I'm like, mix-ins, what's a mix-in? Um, like if I have the same set of, if I have a bunch of, a bunch of rules that get applied to like, several different classes and I'm going to create a mix in for it and I can just in- include those in um, when I'm, when I'm defining the, the rules for that class and not have to. I see. So it's like Im- to, importing a snippet. Yeah. 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 Or do the same thing with creating variables for things like colors and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So now the variables of all the things about SAS that I think um, are, are, and I don't want this to sound bad. Like it's mostly syntactical. Well, not syntactical sugar. It's like, why can't I say syntactical? <laughs> I don't know. You do that all the time. Syntactical. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's it's like the the one thing that I wish I had was variables in CSS. Yeah, and well, even if you use it for nothing else, you can still just do that. You know. Yeah, you that's don't have true. To, you don't have to nest things inside of things and use mix-ins and, and all of that good stuff. You can just write your CSS normally and have some variables in it if that's all you want to do. Yeah, that's true. So variables I'm a big fan of. I love the, I love that idea. The nesting, I'm a little meh. It gets a little, it gets weird. Yeah, the, the trick is not to go overboard with it. Like I find if you get more than about, th- nested more than about three levels, mm-hmm. you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. It just becomes... Not only does it become too much of a mess to sort through, like you were saying, the the CSS that you end up generating is just like, it's ridiculous. You know, like if you have, you don't need um, something nested to like body container, child div selector, div form, label, such and such, span, M, like superscript. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, and that's the only place in your document that you're using superscript. You can just like, you know, just style that the one tag. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't need to get you don't need to go crazy with, with nesting. The the output that it generates gets like way more verbose than it needs to be. Right. 
So, and that, that speaks to the, you know, it, bad code's bad code. It doesn't matter if it's SAS or CSS. But, you know, I, I'm keeping an open mind. When I have, like, a project, I, I, I'm basically aware of what it does. And when I start to feel the pain on some project, then maybe I'll consider it. But I'll probably just give you that project. <laughs> <laughs> I said maybe we should do one together. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. But, you know me, I don't like to have to install a million tools on my machine. I, but still, I can't complain about SAS. Like, gem install SAS, you're done. So that's pretty good. <laughs> So I'll keep an open mind. I realize I'm being an old fart, but uh, but I'm I'm not ready to make the leap with either one SAS or CoffeeScript. Yeah, I feel like I should want to, but I don't. Yeah, I'm 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 very glad that I did with with SAS. I use SAS and or less all the time, every day. Hmm. Is there some some situation where you pick one over the other? Um. Not really. I mean, it's weird because I switch back and forth between the two, but I don't really have a set criteria for doing it. <laughs> just, it's just a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> this feels more lessy. This is more lessy. This, this one feels sassy. more sassy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had gotten into the. I had gotten into the point where I was. I was using mostly less because um, it just felt a little lighter. Than um than SAS and if I needed to I could install the JavaScript and and do some kind of live testing with the less files in the browser that kind of, and not have to not have to have compiled less output or not have to have the compiled CSS you know because because less lets you do this thing where it'll there's JavaScript that you you can include in the head of your page and it will parse the the less files and, and output um, CSS. Right, that's browser, right. I forgot about that. Which you, you never want to use in production. Yes, I would. that would be crazy. That would be crazy and stupid. Yes. But in testing, it can come in handy. And set, less feels a little lighter. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten into the habit of using it for a lot of things. And uh, then when I got back into Rails development, um, like the built-in, built-in defaults for Rails are SAS and... Um, using SAS instead of less. There's a less gem you can install, but I find the error reporting uh, for SAS is still a little better. So I'm I'm kind of slowly switching everything back to SAS. Mm. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'll keep an open mind someday. Uh, someday, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, I feel like if I don't get up to speed on them, I'm just going to like basically... I'm basically saying I'm not a web developer anymore. <laughs> it's like, like everyone's <laughs> Getting to just the point m- where you, you have to, you have to do it or, you know, or you're just getting stop stale. saying you're stop saying you're a front end developer. Yeah. And you're like, Oh no, I'm a manager now. So yeah. not ready to do that either. Although I have taken to wearing slippers around the house, which is alarming. Why? I don't know. It just makes me feel like my grandfather. So I've been doing that for years. Yeah, it's I never did that. I don't yeah, know. I, I don't the, even know where they came from. <laughs> I got into the habit when I was living in Calgary. It was freaking cold. Oh, no well, that, that makes sense. No, I'm I'm wearing slippers right now. <laughs> We've got that in common. <laughs> so anyway, so in, <clears throat> I guess in terms of in terms of development setup, you've got a, a do we. Is there, I guess it depends on the project, but you obviously, you do all of your um, development locally and then you'll push it to a server, right? So like you'll have a, a local Rails environment set up or whatever. Right. And then I'll, then I'll deploy it to a server. Right. 
Have you been doing any, have you done anything with like, um, like what, when you go to deploy, <clears throat> what's the process there? Is it just, you know, like push it to GitHub or something and then go to the server and pull it from there or do you have hooks in GitHub or do you just upload I'm, it? I'm really inconsistent with this mm -hmm. and I need to not be, but I just, if I'm just uploading to a test server, I mean, there's a lot of cases, like if I'm just doing a small personal project for myself or something, mm -hmm. I'll just open FTP and, and throw the files up there. Right. If I'm doing things for somebody else where I have a little more, little more control over it, a little better tracking of, of things that are going on, um, you know, quite often I'll, I'll clone and pull from a Git repository. Mm -hmm. But I really, really want to get into something more like either Chef or Puppet. Mm-hmm. On a, on a consistent basis. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm not, I don't think I need to go that far with it as, you know, of course, me resistant to new tools, but the, but I have gotten into the habit of, or I should say I've gotten out of the habit of FTPing my files to the server. And I've gotten into the habit of SSHing to the server and pulling from GitHub. And that has been a huge improvement. I'm sure there's people laughing, like, you know, the, the dear listener is probably laughing his ass off or her <laughs> ass off thing. Like, of course, yeah, well, duh. Uh -huh. But I just, it's just old habits die hard. And for the longest time, I would just do my development on the server because I didn't care. I'm like, too <laughs> bad. This is the web. If, you know, if somebody's on there and it breaks, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and I got really, really good at being able to work on a live site in a way that, that was unobtrusive. Was not obtrusive. Yeah. But it's a total cowboy thing to do. Um, and the reason why I was good at it isn't even because I'm a good web developer. It's because I had to do that all the time with FileMaker because that was the only way to do it. Oh. And there really wasn't a way, there wasn't a reasonable way to do work on FileMaker without doing it on the live server in tons of yeah. cases because you can't, because the, the data was all bound to. Oh, yeah. It was all one thing. Like the interface and the data were the same thing. So doing work in an offline file meant doing an import, which there's no way to do, you know, programmatically or at least easily. Yeah. So it was, just, it was just, you just had to work on the live one. And, um, after doing that for like 10 years, the web is a joke because <laughs> it is separated, you know? Yeah. So anyway, so, but I'm, I'm definitely, uh, other than, than straight up, like my personal website and just simple stuff like that. Uh, I definitely have gotten into the habit of pushing to GitHub, making sure that every, you know, all it just, it, cause I've got so many different machines. I don't have to worry about which machine I'm on. I know GitHub is the repo of record and I can just pull yep. from anywhere and it's yep. already saved my butt several times, especially it's especially in a team situation Oh yeah, where yeah. you're like, who's got the files, you know, like who's got, you know, and everybody's doing local development. Yeah. Yeah, like like if I'm if I'm doing something in like a small something and I just want to throw it up on the web to set, to show show my a friend or something like that, I'll just FTP. But um, yeah, I do a lot of a lot of cloning from GitHub, and I actually have have a couple of scripts I've written that I can just kind of run in the background on the server and that will just sit there and monitor monitor GitHub for any changes. And then it's kind of like a GitHub deploy hook, but it's all coming from my server rather than yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I don't okay. necessarily, I, I, the deploy hooks, I, I only know that they exist. I have never used one and that's probably not what I would want to do for those use cases that I'm in lately. Yeah. Where I don't necessarily want 
the changes pushed. Like I want to, I kind of like want to save my changes in the repo on my, on one machine. Cause maybe I'm about to switch to a different machine to do more development, but I don't, I wouldn't want to push to like the live server where people are potentially poking around. Yeah. Well, I guess what you would, what you would do in that case, you'd have a, you'd have uh, deploy hooks for a specific branch. And then like you just push, like for instance, you just push to your production branch, then it deploys. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. That's, that would work. That would be great. Cause I am working, you know, like right now I'm on a team thing and we have a dev branch and a master branch and the master branch is kind of like the release. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that makes sense though, that you could, you know, have hooks just for changes to a particular branch, in which case that would be perfect. Yeah. And just push to your production branch and, and then anything, anything pushed to production gets deployed. Sweet. So yeah, I've, <laughs> I make a lot of branches. <laughs> Really, and a branch happy. <laughs> uh, well, so geez, I, I mean, in terms of in terms of um, my setup, my setup is like super bare bones. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I just have God, you know, it's like it's just Sublime Text two and Google Chrome on the desktop. Yeah, and uh, if I you know, and, and a terminal window pretty much. Uh, like I said, I haven't been FTPing that much anymore. When I do, I use transmit, but I don't even do it that much. Do you, um, do you just use bash or have you made the leap to something like ZSH? No, just bash. And I, I did one thing I did do to make it easier to pull on the production server, you know, pull to the production server. Or it's really the dev mm-hmm. server, but the public dev server, um, is that I, I created a bunch of sim links in my home directory to, particular projects that are in progress. So I don't have to like, it's just easier to, you know, go into them. So like SSH in the machine and then bang, I'm right into the, you know, one yeah, CD. You don't have, don't have to CD to like var www yeah. project name. Right. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. It's even worse than that on mine actually. It's like, <laughs> because they're all, you know, I, I don't want to give away my folder structure on the server, but it's a long, it's a deep nest. And, yeah. uh, and you know, so now it's just like SSH give your password you're in i could even not even you know i could just use like you're still using passwords <laughs> yeah i can't stand that I, I can't stand moving my private keys around it's like to me that seems worse yeah i just i have the one on my laptop and the one on my desktop and that's it i mean same key but i have it on my laptop and my desktop and that's it you know yeah no i, I don't I, have i don't have nearly the number nearly the number of of computers that i re- routinely use that you do yeah I just keep them in Dropbox. <laughs> <laughs> Private key in Dropbox. It's yeah, no big deal. No, no big deal. I'm sure no one's like scraping the Dropbox site for that. Something like Git repository somewhere. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So password and then CD, bang, I'm straight into the project, Git pull. If anything comes down, it comes down. And then I start working. It's super, okay. super easy. And I can develop on any, I mean, hell, the other day I made changes to a site on my iPhone yeah. You know, I was like, I, you know, crap, I can't get my laptop online. The, the, I could, oh, you know what it was actually? I was behind a corporate firewall and they wouldn't mm. allow SSH traffic. Mm. So I just used prompt on my iPhone, got in there, did a git pull, came down, vim, made the change, colon Q. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Done. It was nice. tight. <laughs> I felt pretty, Isn't... pretty rad. You felt. 
yeah, felt like you'd earned your 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 geek points there. Yeah. And then you went and ruined it all by getting on Twitter and hating on Sass. <laughs> <laughs> ruined whatever cred you just managed to obtain there. Yeah, I'm sure everyone was picturing me out like on the front porch in a bathrobe and like like dirty tidy whities shaking my tiny fist. Yeah. <laughs> Your cane, right. waving your cane in the air. <laughs> so, Crazy kids. Right. So anyway. Yeah, isn't isn't distributed source control wonderful? It's the best thing ever. Yeah, you know what I used to do is like if you looked at my machine circa like two thousand and whatever when I started using Git, mm-hmm. it was like it'd be like your web root and then webroot.zip, webroot2.zip, webroot3.zip, <laughs> webroot4.zip. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah, I started I started with Subversion back in probably 2007. Yeah. Before that. That's basically just a glorified FTP if you ask me. It's like <laughs> I don't F- like it at all. <laughs> FTP with commit statements. Yeah. Like I was using it because it seemed like a good idea, but then once you know, once Git, once I became aware of Git, it was immediate. It was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah, I still have to use Subversion for my uh, uh, O'Reilly uses Subversion for their authors when they're writing a book, and it's fine. You know, it's not like it's not like you're doing the kind of code changes that need to be tracked the way that the way that code changes need to be tracked. Yeah. So it's good enough to have like a couple of editors, you know, for a book and a couple of editors and whatever, and you can at least see yeah, what's happening. I was using I was using some version on a project not too long ago, and you know, I mean, it wasn't my favorite. I prefer Git, but it gets you know, it got the job done. Right. And um, that's funny though. I hear a lot of people a lot of people saying that Git is hard to get into. Did I had a hard it? time. I needed yeah. help. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sitting here going, I, I mean, I've, I've heard that a lot, and then I thought, this is just going to sound like I'm bragging, but I don't mean it that way. Because <laughs> I, I, never, I never really thought of Git as being difficult to get into. Um, I mean, because there's a lot of really advanced things you can do with it, but just you know, the basics of creating a repository, cloning, pushing, branching, merging, you know, that kind of stuff, it never seemed, never seemed really, really difficult to me. And then I got to looking... Um, and I looked through the documentation, and there are a total of 49 different Git commands. Hmm. And then I got to counting the ones I use on a regular basis, and I got up to, like, 34. Really? Like, okay, maybe I do more than more more in here than I realized I did. Yeah, no, I'm a yeah. novice Git. Like, I just know enough to, like, you know, do commits and pulls and the basic stuff. I mean, well, that's what it feels like I'm doing. But then once I sat down and, and wrote it all out and... These are my my typical steps for going through and, and and typical commands I use when working on a project. It was it was more than I thought it was. Hmm. No, I promise you, I use three commands. It's like <laughs> it's like clone, commit, push and pull. Those you know, and and when you and when you first set up, uh, in it. And- yeah, and it. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, maybe I, maybe there's ten commands that I use, but there's a couple that I use once a month that I have to look up every time. Yeah. But uh, but you know, I still do. I still a lot of times if I'm doing development on my local machine, which I'm not always. Um, but if I'm doing development on a local machine, I will 
usually do my commits with gitx, which is an OSX git client, because it makes it really easy to um, stage individual changes and do individual commits after you've done like a bunch of work. That surprises me, given your, given your love of the command line. I don't know how to do it at the command line. And it, it's like, how do you, I don't, I didn't even know. I've never even looked into it. Um, and the person who, who taught me Git used Git X. So mm. that was it. <laughs> I would prefer oh, to do it yeah. at the like, command line, like but if I don't you, know how. Like if you've changed a bunch of files and you only want to commit some of them. Or I want to, well, I want to commit them all, but I want to have different commit messages for the different things. So like I might go in on a tear for like two hours and change a bunch of CSS, and then I might fix some JavaScript. Basically, on a you know fixing bugs, I've got a list of bugs to fix, and I just tear through it and I fix them. And then I'm like, ah, oh, crap, I forgot to commit a couple of them, or I'll jump around and you're like, ah, oh, man. So, but I want to do them individually so the messages are ah. are clear, and and you can stage individual changes, and it's really easy to do with this this app. I have no idea how to do it at the command line. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't really had to do that a lot. Mm. Yeah, because you're probably have, smart and a, you just <laughs> make a commit when you should. <laughs> when I have, I just stash the files that I don't want in that particular commit, make my commit, and you know, read and, and unstash, and then commit the other stuff. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's beyond me. So, yeah, that, I, like I'm saying, I I'm a be, novice. I may be doing it horribly inefficiently. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like it happens to me every once in a while I'll get into it. And this only happens with like a, in a team situation, but every once in a while I'll get into a place where I can't pull and I can't push and it won't even let me merge. And I'm like, uh, and so I archive the file the directory and I <laughs> start from scratch clone. And then, you know, and then I go through and I'm like, okay, what did they change? And what did I, you know, so I do this like really atrocious manual yep. merge manual thing yeah yeah and i i know that's ridiculous but it happens so it happens like twice a year and so i'm like you know i'm gonna i'm really gonna look this up if i look this up i'm gonna forget it anyway yeah so i don't know but uh yeah i mean in terms of it's funny because some of the when i think about my workflow mm -hmm. um it's it like you said it's definitely different for me when it comes to personal stuff and team stuff or client stuff. Yeah. I'm a lot more lazy about my personal stuff. Yeah, me too. That doesn't count. Which is, which is weird because the client stuff that I do is all stuff that I do to make things, you know, more organized and better and easier. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, but it is more work, but it creates less risk. Yeah. Like if I, if I, if I have like a, you know, two hour session, I actually trash, you know, on my own yeah. website and I screw it up. Like it's my own. No big problem. deal. We do. Yeah, I guess in the in the long run, on large on large projects, it's it's less work, but it's more setup initially. And most of the stuff I'm most of the personal stuff I'm doing are just little small things, and it's just you know, whatever. If it, if it all goes to hell, no one cares but me. You know? Right. Right. And and even me is questionable whether or not I care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're just goofing around to kill time. Yeah. So, but the tools that I use are to, for the actual development in a team situation are more about the communication than about mm -hmm. the actual development. So like I'm constantly on IM, I'm constantly, I use the cloud app all the time to like share screenshots, uh, Skype, I, 
all, all that stuff is kind of like part of my workflow just as much as like sublime text. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, I use, I use Skype a lot and you and I, I am a lot. Yeah. I, I am a lot and I have to, um, like I do a lot of, uh, I use QuickTime a lot to record short little, like one or two minute videos so I can send them to a client and be like, okay, the, I, these changes are done. You can see whatever, you know, they're usually not the kind of people that are going to read commit messages. So here's a video of the stuff I worked on. Here's how it should work when you get the file or when you test the website, it should go like that. And if it doesn't, let me know. Oh man, they eat that stuff up. It's great. It's easier for me. And it's like super, it's like the, it's super clear. It's really good. Yeah, I, I totally stole the video the making videos idea from you. And just everyone I've everyone I've done it for just loves it. Yeah. And it means you don't have to have a screen share like a live at the same time phone call. You know, because you know, yeah. it's like some sometimes it's tough to schedule that stuff. You work weird hours and then you just make the video, submit it, and bang, you're done. And yeah. it's great. And it's a it's a good way to kind of step through and make sure everything just a just a, a double check for myself to make sure everything's working the way it does it should too. Yep, that happens. I would say full fifty percent of the time I go to make the video and I find a bug, and I'm like, imagine if I had just described in text how what to do to test it. Should have happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just great. It's just so much easier. It takes you like two seconds. It takes longer to export the video half the time than it does to actually record it. Yeah. So that's a, but you know, in terms of, in terms of actual development tools, I'm like, I can't even barely think of anything. It's like a text editor and a web browser. Reflection isn't that reflection app. We've mentioned that before. If you're doing a lot of, um, if you were going to make a video of like your website on an iPad, for example, um, reflection is really good because it allows you to like mirror your iPad screen on your laptop and then record a video on the laptop you know, while you're talking, you say, Oh, you know, tap here, it's going to slide over. And then you should see the sample data and let me know if uh, you have any problems. Click. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only other big tools that I can think of, um, that I use that are different is, you know, of course, code kit that I've already mentioned. The only other things I can really think of are, um, uh, probably RSpec and, uh, Capybara. RSpec? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, um, like unit testing, Ruby. Oh, cool. I thought you were, uh, we've been doing so much R-Sync. I thought you might have been. I was like, wow. That's a, R-Sync, that, that whole thing is a, a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I got stuck on R-Spec and what was the other one? Uh, Capybara. What's, that sounds familiar, but I can't remember. Yeah, it's an, that's a, uh, Ruby testing library for, um, integration testing. Oh, cool. Testing, what's that? Testing what? That's what I'm doing in Chrome Dev Tools. Get off my lawn. <laughs> exactly. No one should be writing apps that are complicated enough to need testing. Testing, automated testing. What? Should be simple. <laughs> so your that's... API works. No one, nothing else matters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I um. You know, typically if I'm just doing like a Sinatra APR, then I'll just use Rack Unit or something. But yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like, like the testing testing an API, I think is obviously it's critical, and it's pretty. I feel like it's pretty well dialed. Like there are good tools for it. Mm-hmm. Testing a responsive website, I think, is an unknown quantity. 
a lot of that has to be. I mean, you can do something, set up something like, uh, like for instance, Copybara to go through and make sure all of your links work and all of your actions are working the way they should and, and that sort of stuff. But you're going to have to go in and, and manually test on different devices and different resolutions mm-hmm. just to make sure things are looking the way they should. Yeah, and if you've got like, you know, touch swipe carousels and like all yeah. that stuff, there's no way. you got to do it. Yeah. Oh, edge inspect. Yeah, that helps. Edge inspect. That's and I do use that sometimes. That uh, it's just basically like a shadow browser you can install on um, iOS and Android devices. That uh, it sort of like your your laptop becomes a server and the devices watch the browser in the in the desktop and they kind of like follow it on their own. So you can browse around the site yeah. in the desktop and have it update on all the devices at the same time. That's really yeah. nice. I don't I don't use it a whole lot because uh usually if I'm testing something on a mobile device I'll also want to test the interactions. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to need to just just pull it up and and use it on the device for a while. Right. Yeah, it's good for watch it's it once you get to interaction testing then it's I'm I'm with you. But it's great for just quickly going through and seeing if your CSS is borked right, anywhere. Right. Making sure your layout's not broken. Right. But to be honest, um, lately, you know, since I don't use SAS and I keep things simple, (laughs) (laughs) I have been pleasantly surprised with the the mobile of first approach that we're always espousing and just going through and being like, oh, progressive enhancement works. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I have to break from it now, I'm just, oh. It's brutal. And I can see why, I mean, we probably said this a million times, but I can see why people think. Uh, responsive web design is hard because if they start with a desktop site and desktop CSS and they try and remove stuff for smaller browsers, it's like, it's like whack-a-mole. It's brutal. Yeah. It's totally brutal. Yeah. You, I don't think it's possible to do responsive web design efficiently unless you're doing mobile first progressive enhancement. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. It's it's almost got to be. You can't start with the desktop site. You're gonna hate it. It's gonna be brutal. Yeah, you're gonna want to stab yourself in the face with a fork with a steak knife. Right. You'll you'll sound like me talking about SAS. Yeah. <laughs> Responsive web design is stupid. <laughs> so I'm I'm actually taking. Uh, I had the other day speaking of progressive enhancement and starting mobile first. Um, I actually am working on spaghetti frames for mm-hmm. a uh, a sort of big corporate microsite and tested it and i've been rad since we don't uh, we it's from scratch basically so um i'm trying to and and we're still in the the wireframing stage so i'm trying to keep things Mm -hmm. as unbelievably um default as possible so so the pages work without css the pages work without javascript the pages work without media queries the pages work without all that stuff the pages work without touch events, but if I if I want to add that stuff in, I do. And so if the if the you know I do some feature detection, I say, hey, I've got touch events here. Let's let's make this better. Or hey, I've got CSS here. Let's include some. Yeah. Um, that sort of stuff. And I for the for the I sort of had a, a light bulb go off. I'm not sure how I feel about this yet, but I realized that I was taking a mobile. Well, mobile's the wrong word, but I was taking a, a graceful degradation approach to my JavaScript 
in spite of the fact that that's not the way I think it should be done. Mm-hmm. So what I was, what I'm, what I'm doing in the templates and I do this on any serious project, I would do this, which is I wouldn't just include JavaScript, like an external JavaScript file. I would only include it if JavaScript was the way I want it. So it's either there or it's good support. But but the way that I, so I've got at the bottom of the files, I've got this sort of, I've got this script tag, open script tag. And it basically says, if this is not a lame browser and I have some browser checks, then yeah, then include these files in this order. So, you know, if this, if this browser is not lame, then include say Zepto or jQuery or modernizer or yep, nope or whatever. And then whatever my application JavaScript is. And I realized that that is, that's like, that's not the approach. The approach should be that I go in and say, if this is a good browser or if this browser has support for whatever, then, then include this stuff. And it's a, it's a definitely a different mindset. It's kind of like the difference between whitelist and blacklist. Yeah. So. It sounds, it sounds similar, but it's a different kind of a backwards yeah, I feel like I had it backwards. Like yeah. checking to see if it was a lame browser is 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 goes against the principle. Yeah, like you should be checking to see if it's a if it's a cool browser. Right. So check to see. So instead of being like, you know, like I did one recently was basically said if this if there's BlackBerry in the user agent string, then don't include anything because yeah. I you know we don't need it. The site works without it. Uh, it takes too long to load all the JavaScript anyway. So you're so even though some of the JavaScript will work on BlackBerry, the penalty in page load time isn't really worth it. Not worth it, yeah. Whereas what you should have been doing is saying, you know, if there's, like, if there's, like, Mozilla, if there's a in window string, or, string, then, yeah. Yeah, so, so basically what I'm, I haven't tried this yet, and it could be a pain in the butt, but what I'm thinking is, what I want to do is say, okay, in my JavaScript, I'm using some edgy stuff like query selector all, or, or whatever console log. Um, and I only want to, I want to make sure that anything that I'm using in my JavaScript that is potentially edgy. Uh, if it's not, if it's not in the, you know, only include my JavaScript if that stuff's there. So I basically make a list of features that are required to run my JavaScript, but kind of like dependencies. Yeah. And if it doesn't have those, if it doesn't meet the criteria, then it just gets the non JavaScript experience, which is fine. And if it turns out that it, it sort of like solves itself, like it ends up, the JavaScript ends up never being broken unless I do something dumb, but uh, it's never a case of like, oh, you know, IE handles event attaching differently or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it could be that in testing, someone's like, it doesn't seem like JavaScript's working in Firefox. Then I can go in and potentially change my tests or update my JavaScript so that it will. Um, but it's it's this concept of like, of flipping the thinking around so that it's like, you know, it, it's like lame browser. I shouldn't be, I, I even called the function lame browser <laughs> and it's like, that's the exact opposite thinking. It should be like, you know, like I said, it's like browser's a browser. Your stuff should work in, you know, within reason it should work in everything. Yeah. And, uh, and if you can enhance the experience because this browser is super cool, then go ahead. So we'll see. There's this sort of notion of, of like <clears throat> from the database world where you create a, a, you know, 
normal form. Like you create this mm -hmm. database design that's perfectly normalized, mm -hmm. but they almost never, you almost never actually go to production with a perfectly normalized database because you have to denormalize for performance reasons or, or yeah. some other pragmatic concern. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've we've seen that many times on things we've worked on together. Yeah, you start out with it normalized, and then it slowly, <laughs> I guess, devolves over time. Yeah, it moves it, it moves into a stable state pretty quickly, but there's a yeah. couple of things that you just have. You know, it's just like you what, end up making making sacrifices for performance. Right, and that's you know that's normal. Um, and I kind of do the same thing with these, like we talked about last week, defaults. So like my default is to take an approach like this, like an extreme progressive enhancement approach. And then I'll make concessions for sure later when we get to testing and people are like, um, you know, can you make this perfect on the iPhone? And I'll be <laughs> like, yeah, but that's going to break everything on the, the Kindle 2 e-ink browser. And they'll be like, yeah, we don't really care about that. I care. <laughs> and I'll be like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I run into these things sometimes. Like, can you change such a... Like, no one but you cares. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure we will denormalize this project when it gets to testing because the testing is going to be brutal on this one. Yeah. Have you ever worked with ASP.net? Fortunately, no. Yeah, it's probably good that you said no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I'm having to bone up on it. Yeah, I've had, I've had some interest lately from a couple of, of fairly big companies that do a lot of Java, and my, like I've only really dabbled in Java, mm -hmm. but the interest has been centered around other things, sort of like like API design and and that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been I've been toying with the idea of learning more Java. And I just, I can't, I can't decide if that's something I want to do or not. Hmm. I'm, I've only dabbled with it myself and mostly just for Android development, but, uh, I don't mind Java. Java reminds me of, of, um, I don't know. Java feels really comfortable to me. I don't, yeah. I don't like, know I, don't, I don't think I'd hate it. Uh, I, I don't think I'd mind it at all. Actually. It's just, you know, it's just one more thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. But Java, I mean, Java, I feel like has a little, has a bad reputation because of the, the way that applets were and like in Java, client side Java applications, but on the yeah. server side, it's wicked fast and it, yeah. it's like incredibly mature, Yeah, you know, in the way that PHP, like PHP, if you, if you can think of it, PHP can do it. Yeah. Like somebody did it and wrote it and Java is the same way every time, you know, every time I look into it, it's like you know, forget about it. There's like every kind of IDE, there's every kind of library, there's everything. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't have an objection to learning Java in terms of, you know, a problem with the language or a lack of desire to use the language or wanting to avoid it or anything like that. It's just a, just a time commitment kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd rather learn Java than SAS. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'd rather learn Java than Objective-C. Oh yeah, Puh. I don't know. I I would love to go off on a rant about Objective C because I've been <laughs> I've been do, I've been continually doing Objective C, but uh, you're out of blood pressure medication. Yeah, I'll save it. For, we're already over an hour, so I'll save it for another show. But you can save save that for sitting around the the checkerboard of the old folks' home. Exactly. Can you believe the function signatures in Objective C? Objective C. <laughs> Checkmate. 
<laughs> so, yeah, we should probably... We in, should your, probably in your slippers. <laughs> exactly. In your bathrobe. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, all right, dear listener. That's our show for this week. And I am Jonathan Stark. And he is Jonathan Stark. That's right. <laughs> and I'm Kelly Shaver. <laughs> and we hope you join us again next week for another rant on the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye. Sass is stupid. It's not. <laughs> 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 <laughs>